It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Full bore into the Major League postseason. The Minor League Baseball Podcast returns to your phone, computer, mobile device, tablet, wherever you get the Minor League Baseball Podcast. The show before the show. Hi, everybody. I'm Tyler Mon. He's Sam Dykstra. Hi, Sam. Hi, Tyler. What is up? How much? Let's just say every, everything's coming to people's brains. Yeah. You know, let's, let's pretend it's somehow it. getting to their, you know, it's going through their ears into their brains. No matter so what. However, however you're listening there, thank you for inviting us into your uh, headspace. We're infecting you. Yeah. The brain stem. This is the 29th edition of the show before the show. I'm Tyler. He's Sam. As I said, we are recording on Arizona Fall League opening day today, which is Tuesday, October 13th. So happy opening day to uh, those of you excited about the AFL, uh, of which we are certainly among that crowd. Uh, we got some AFL talk coming up later on in the show. Um, here's what else we have in the show today. Oakland Athletics guest coach Justine Siegel will join the show. Justine, the very first woman to throw batting practice to a major league team, which she did back in 2011. This year, a guest instructor for the Oakland A's in uh, instructional league work, which is going on right now in Arizona. Really, really cool to get a chance to talk to Justine. That'll be coming up here in just a short bit. And uh, as always... You can find the show before the show on iTunes. You can rate, review, and subscribe to the show before the show podcast. There, we've also got an RSS feed which you can find uh, at milb.com. We've got all of our all of our episodes, and uh, we're all over the place. So, rate, review, subscribe, and uh, let us know what you think of the minor league podcast. And with that. Let's get started. Uh, strike number one for this week's edition of Three Strikes. We're uh, a few weeks removed from the end of the minor league baseball season, the AAA championship game, of course, late last month, which means that organization all-star stories have started rolling out, and uh, we've already got four up on the site with a few more coming this week. We're going in alphabetical order. Sam just came out with his Boston Red Sox story, uh, but we've got all kinds of stuff up so far. Arizona Diamondbacks, Atlanta Braves, Baltimore Orioles, uh, the Red Sox, the White Sox will be coming up later on this week. That's my story, um, or the first of, of our stories for uh, for the Oregon All-Stars. And Sam, just give us some of uh, some of the guys who you've noted so far um, through these first handful of stories with Oregon All-Stars. Yeah, the way I kind of want to go about this is just kind of, like you said, we've got, I think, four lists out right now. Um, I just kind of want to go through who the guys of the system are, you know, capital G guys, who the guys really stood out. Um, Won't necessarily call them MVPs, but in terms of, you know, who had the best years and who kind of surprised us. You know, there are certainly guys, you know, not necessarily breakout prospects, but guys who we weren't necessarily talking about in April, um, didn't think they would have the years they did and now are what we call organization all-stars um, just something to kind of kind of highlight with these pieces. We do them every year or we've done them for the past couple of years, at, at least since I've been here. Um, these are guys who we're not naming the best prospects in every system. Um, we're just talking about who had the best year. So you could be 35, you know, a quad a player playing in triple a, but if you were the best third baseman in the organization, we will see that you're recognized. That's the, just the way we do things. We like to focus on the minors as a whole, um, so we don't leave guys out based on whether they've graduated prospect status or age or anything like that. Um, so for me, kind of just 
starting along here with, with the D-backs. Um, Josh Jackson did the, the piece for us, and his headliners were Peter O'Brien and Aaron Blair. Um, you know, the, I kind of agree with him there. You know, Peter O'Brien, first year, first full year, um, played a lot of games that, over there in Reno, um, showed plenty of power there, uh, knocked in a franchise record 107 runs, and also hit 26 homers and 35 doubles, and obviously an offensive rich environment over there in Reno in the PCL. Um, Aaron Blair, you know, climbed all the way to AAA, played a, half the season at Mobile, half the season at Reno, uh, went 13-5, and 2.92 ERA. These are both guys we expected to kind of thrive at the upper levels. You know, they were going to get their chances to uh, get tested at, at those levels, and they did well there. Um, but a guy who kind of stood out, a guy who had a better year than I thought, I think we've talked about him in the podcast before, Isan Diaz with Missoula. Uh, he was the Pioneer League MVP, hit 360 with a 436 OBP, 12 homers, 12 steals. Um, you know, this is a guy who hasn't played a full full season yet, was a little bit of a high pick. He's a competitive balance pick last year, um, drafted out of Springfield, Mass., which is my neck of the woods where I grew up in western Massachusetts. So I, I like to give him a shout-out for that alone, but he really had a bigger year than um, what maybe we were expecting. Um, certainly didn't hit all that well in the Arizona League last year, first full you know, first year after his draft year. Um, had a nice breakout year there for the D-backs. Um, kind of moving on to the Braves, the guys of the system there, Arzeno Albies, I'm always going to – I'm just going to call him Ozzy. A lot of people in the industry call him Ozzy. He speaks like 17 languages, so I'm sure however you say it, it's probably correct in one of them. Right. Ozzy's just more fun to say. Yeah, too. definitely. It's a good baseball name too. It is a, it's a great baseball name, especially for a shortstop. Um, Ozzy Albies, <laughs> you know, had the year we kind of were expecting him to have with Rome – um, you know, young, young guy hit really, really well there. Malik Smith, the guy who came over in the uh, Justin Upson trade um, over from San, uh, San Diego, excuse me, um, performed really, really well. It, it was kind of funny. Uh, John Parker, one of the editors here at the site, wrote it. Um, he toned down his running game slightly. You know, this is a guy who has tons of speed. He's got plus-plus speed as an outfielder. Uh, but he still stole 57 bases. I mean, that's just kind of the ceiling for him is that he can steal tons of bases, and he and 57 steals is a little bit of a uh, you know a, a disappointment maybe based on previous performance for him. Um, so those are the two guys that shine there in, in the Brave system. Um, kind of the surprise for me was Jonathan Morales, a catcher. There he was a. Uh, uh, 25th round pick in this year's June draft, but he hit 304, 377, 511 in 46 games in the GCL, first time playing with a wood bat. Um, you know, Braves assistant director of player development, Jonathan Sherholtz, had a couple of nice things to say about him, no, most notably that he's a leader. Uh, you know, first year in the system, already taking on that role in the Gulf Coast League, so a lot of good things coming his way. We'll have to see who. What happens when he leaves the complex level? You know, a lot of these guys, they do well there, playing against some really young guys from recent draft picks, some guys coming from the Dominican and Venezuelan leagues. Um, so it, all of a sudden he went from just a 25th-round pick to a guy we're going to have to actually keep an eye on going forward. Um, in the Orioles system, a uh, guy of the system has to start with Trey Mancini. We've kind of talked about him at length, the breakout year he had. Um, this is a good chance to plug Milby's. Um, you know, he's up for Offensive Player of the Year up against some really, really big names, but the way he played at Bowie and uh, Frederick this year really earned his spot there. Uh, the surprise for me, at least in terms of, uh, you know, guys we didn't expect to see, um, was Oliver Drake. Uh, he was our pick for reliever. 
Um, it was between him and Michael Gibbons, but uh, you know the way the numbers he put up in Norfolk and he got some time in Baltimore itself. Uh, 0.82 ERA was perfect, 23 for 23 in saves, held opponents to a 151 average, and struck out 66 in 44 innings. I mean, those are just insane numbers. That's going to put you on the map. And when you do it at the AAA level, as he did, um, you know, that's going to put you on the map even further, get him a couple games, a dozen games with the Orioles. Um, now he's definitely a uh, you know, relieving arm that we're going to have to consider going forward. And lastly, you know, my, my piece for the Red Sox, uh, the Red Sox has a system this year. You know, if you're looking wins and losses, we don't necessarily do that a heck of a lot at, at, until these end of the year pieces. Um, Red Sox as a system had just a 477 winning percentage. Uh, Gulf Coast League team was the only stateside team to qualify for its postseason. So after years of you know Red Sox doing really really well as an organization in terms of wins and losses, that didn't happen this year. Um, but you look at once you put together this all-star team. Um, just how much talent was there, at, especially at the lower levels. Um, you know, Yohan Mankata, we talked about him at length, just the way he was able to turn around in the second half, really justifying, A, his signing bonus, $31.5 million, and his place among um, on prospect lists. He's number eight overall. Um, in, that se- in the second half in 56 games, he had a 310, 415, 500 slugging percentage with 45 steals. Um, so showed some nice pop with seven homers. He's only going to grow into that. Rafael Devers had more power. Emmanuel Margot, you know, continued to show lots of speed. So there, there's lots of there's lots to like in this Red Sox system. Even if you know you weren't rooting for the Red Sox, if you were a fan, you weren't rooting for them in their particular postseasons. Uh, we've talked a little bit about Andrew Benintendi plenty of this year. Um, two guys for me in that system to look at going forward: uh, Mauricio Dubon. Um, I put him as a utility player just because the way the roster worked out in Greenville, there was just so many infielders there between Moncada, Javier Guerra, who's also on this list, Michael Chavez, who was a first-rounder last year, Rafael Devers, um, that before Moncada got there, they had Dubon at second. Once they moved him up to Salem, um, they moved him back to short. How that dynamic is going to work between him and Guerra. Guerra's a particularly really well-gifted defensive shortstop, um, but those two are going to kind of come up together. Dubon's got that time at second, got that time at short. The Sox are very high on him at both positions. They think he could be either one going forward, so we'll have to see how that shakes out. It's a good problem to have. And the other guy, again, a reliever, um, was Williams Harris. Uh, this is just his second season as a full-time pitcher. They actually named him the minor league pitcher of the year, 2.54 ERA, 86 strikeouts, 88 two-thirds innings as a left-hander. Um, he was drafted in, as an outfielder in the second round in 2011. Um, but they really liked his arm. One of those guys is, you know, couldn't hit a lick, but the way he played defensively, the way he was showing an arm out there, they thought, you know, we've invested a second round pick in you. We want to give you more of a chance. Let's see how you handle, you know, uh, arm out of the bullpen. And he's really taken on that in his second year, um, climbed all the way up to double A Portland. And uh, Ben Crockett, the director of player development there with the Sox. Um, says, you know, the transition has been one that continues to build momentum. So they think that's going to go forward into this winter um, going forward next year as he as he probably starts again in Portland and tries to crack Pawtucket and even the Sox. 
that is the crazy thing when you look at those Red Sox uh, listings. I mean, all the guys, it seems like virtually everybody came through Greenville and Salem at some point this year. I mean, that's how loaded that system is right now at the, the relatively lower levels. I mean, Class A advance is only three steps from the big league, so that's not the lowest level. But when you have that much talent in Class A and in Class A advance, that seems to suggest that the future is going to be pretty bright because as those guys, even as they start to hit those weed out levels at Class A advance and Double A, the more that you have of them at the lower levels, the more confident you are that a lot of them are going to continue to climb together and graduate eventually. Um, one of the things that I think, and I agree with all the guys you pointed out as the the standouts in these lists, and you very uh, accurately noted. I mean, our awards for organization all stars, not based on prospect status, nothing like that. It's who had the best season throughout a system, and I think that's very important to note because I always find it very cool when you see some of those veteran guys who maybe haven't gotten an extended look at the high levels of minor league baseball or crack the big leagues to, to any lengthy extent, but still get that recognition. Um, and it seems like virtually in all of the systems that we've had so far, uh, there are those guys at least. Uh, for the Arizona Diamondbacks, Jamie Romack has been in the PCL every year since 2012. Uh, he spent some time in the Dodger system, made it up with them, but has spent a lot of time as one of those quote-unquote 4A guys but has been very successful uh, in being a, a productive AAA hitter. He got some time up with Arizona this year, led the PCL with 27 homers. I thought that was very cool. Um, Joey Tardoslovich is not an old guy, but has been around for a little while for Braves fans trying to figure out what really to make of him going forward. Uh, set the Carolina League record for most doubles in a season a few years back. There's just been a productive hitter everywhere that he's gone. He's 27. He's been at a whole bunch of different levels this year because of injury, uh, but spent the majority of his time with Triple A Gwinnett. He's the Braves utility player. Uh, Quincy Lattimore, an outfielder in the Orioles system. Lattimore's had a crazy career as well. Uh, initially drafted by the Pirates, spent some time with the Indians, spent some time in independent ball. Now he's back with the Orioles. This year really broke out, hit 20 homers at Double A, uh, batted 274. That was very cool. Um, I've got a White Sox story coming up later on in the week this week. And even there, um, there was a, a guy whose name is probably familiar to a lot of people who have watched that system for a while, but Christian Marrero, who spent mm -hmm. some time away from the White Sox, back with the White Sox this year, 129 games at AA Birmingham. He slashed 282, 390, 431, batted cleanup for 122 of those games. I mean, he's a 29-year-old guy in AA, but at the same time, he put together a productive season, the likes of which wasn't really matched elsewhere by a lot of other outfielders in that system. And so it's cool to get those guys some recognition that's one of my favorite things about the organization all-star stories yeah and that, that's the thing is that we don't really go out of our way one way or another you know we could go out of our way to recognize guys who have been in there a long time or we could go out of our way to go prospects i mean uh it we all get to choose our own list there's our our, our broad factor is though who had the best year at the position right and so that's that's what we're trying to do here is award those guys and somebody like christian marrero it's great when that that is the case, and we can reward those guys who are persevering and uh, coming back. And you know, even no matter what the level, if they put up the numbers, they'll get the awards. So head over to MILB.com and check out the organization All-Star Stories. We've got more coming up this week. We've got the full calendar of uh, who will be released and when. Later on this week, we've got the White Sox coming up um, and then rolling through uh, the, the rest of the American League Central uh, a couple more next week and then on into November, and we're just throwing them all out at you fast and furious. So it's uh, this is going to be a ton of fun for us to watch as these generate some conversation because these are some of the most fun stories we get to do all year. 
year. Um, so head to MILB.com and check out the four that we've got up right now and the ones that are coming up later on in the week. Um, strike two, as we noted, it is Arizona Fall League opening day today which we're recording on tuesday the 13th and this is almost the funnest time of the year for just full-on prospect nerds because prospect christmas is like when the arizona fall league rosters are released and now you get to see that play out and uh there are so many talented rosters this year um i mean what are some of the the things that are standing out to you this year sam it's not really what we saw last year with all the different rules changes uh with the pitch clocks with the between inning clocks there was a lot of focus on that stuff last year and that'll tie into strike three this week but um the rule stuff isn't really at the forefront this year it's kind of we're just talking a lot about prospects this year yeah we get to focus a lot on the rosters and kind of the fun thing about doing this on afl opening day is that you know games are happening right now as we're talking and um earlier today gary sanchez you know a guy who had a really nice bounce back years becoming more and more of a prospect once again in the Yankee system. Um, homered in his first at-bat for surprise. Uh, hit a three-run shot off uh, Braves prospect Lucas Sims, who's playing for Peoria. Um, so we're already seeing some of those returns in, in, in today's games. The Glendale lineup right now, is let, name, let me name some of the guys who are in the lineup today. These are not just hypothetical lineups. These are guys who are actually playing right now. J.P. Crawford is playing shortstop. A.J. Reed is playing first base after hitting third behind J.P. Crawford. Uh, Austin Meadows is playing center. Uh, Astros prospects J.D. Davis and Derek Fisher are playing third base and right field. That's just a stacked lineup right now. Today, we're already seeing it. They're up 4-1 over Mesa as we speak. You know, When you hear this podcast, you'll know the final result better than we will right now, but we're already seeing some of the returns on, on some of these really, really packed lineups and some of the guys, you know, we were excited to see when we first talked about rosters a couple weeks ago. It's like a minor league all-star game every single night. It's like yeah, exactly. three minor yeah. league all-star games every single night in the AFL. The AFL is so much fun to watch. Um, and there are, I think, kind of those stepping stone moments in the Arizona Fall League where you really realize – all right, this guy's got a chance to be something. Um, I Just the other day, looking through some of the guys who, uh, you know, have gone through just in the most recent seasons, and Roberto Ozuna stuck out to me. Last year, didn't get a whole lot of work during the season, but went off to the AFL, was a fall star there, um, was named to their all-star game, and this year's edition of the fall stars will be coming up on November 4th. Um, but it is a a loaded league that sometimes separates guys from is this guy a prospect to yeah this guy's on the way and now you look at Osuna he's closing out games at the major league level like 20 years old for the Blue Jays that's kind of the stepping stone a lot of the time that the AFL provides Um, I'm really interested to see what guys like AJ Reed can do Um, Austin Meadows I mean some of these prospects who we know what they've been able to accomplish in season, um, but what is that going to look like when you're facing even a little bit more advanced pitching from night to night in the AFL? And furthermore, when you're at the end of a very long season, I mean, obviously these guys have gotten to rest a little bit, but like when we talked to AJ Reed, you know, he had just gotten done with a, I think he said like an 18 hour drive home and was just looking to rest up and be okay for a few days before you got to go out and lace it up and do it all over again. So the way guys respond to that will be really interesting to me. Um, Sean Manaya is going to get some work in uh first round pick by the Orioles in 2013 of course traded to the A's uh this year 
came off of an injury this season and threw very, very well for double-A Midland in their run to a Texas League title. Um, he's a lefty who is probably a little bit behind in innings right now, was at one time looked at as the top talent in the draft in 2013, slipped a little bit due to injury, but really came on strong toward the end of the year. Very similar story to him as Kyle Freeland in the Rockies organization. Same thing, started the year injured, finished really strong. He'll get his first start tomorrow as will Manaya. So there's so many storylines in the AFL that you don't really see elsewhere in these prospect leagues because if you send somebody off to play in the Dominican Republic or Venezuela or Mexico or Australia or wherever, those guys are getting their work in, but they're kind of doing it on a more relaxed basis. You get to throw guys into the AFL and test them against the best of the best around them. That's what makes it so fascinating. It, it gets that competitive side of guys flowing, I think, unlike a whole lot of other offseason work. Yeah, and the amount of guys we talk to who say, you know, it is my goal to be in the Futures yeah, game absolutely. And, and get that call to the Fall League. I mean, they're aware of what this moment is, um, whether it's just proving yourself against better prospects or putting yourself on that stage where there are so many scouts who go to these games. I mean, sometimes you see pictures that are not necessarily well attended by major fans, but the amount of scouts that are there, the amount of eyes, you know, talent evaluators, all of a sudden you go from – you know, just a guy who did well in the California League to a legit prospect. Um, you know, the guy who was the AFL MVP. You were talking before about Roberto Azuna kind of stood out to you last year. Greg Bird had a great year in the AFL yeah. last year. And now, all of a sudden, at the end of the year, you know, through Mark Teixeira's injury. But he was a key piece for the Yankees on their march to the postseason. So this is not just, you know, if you if you can perform in the AFL, it, it doesn't – put up more question marks it answers a lot of questions about these guys and that's what we kind of pay attention to um and kind of something we're going to be doing a little different this year on the site we're going to be doing afl notebooks yes um where we're going to be focusing on specific organizations um and who they sent to the fall league and how the, at a certain point at the beginning of the year it's going to be why they're there and then as the year evolves how, or as the season evolves um how they've done and how they've reacted to that environment so that's something that we're looking forward to writing and we're hopefully you guys are looking forward to reading and us talking about more here on the podcast. That's going to be a lot of fun. It'll be cool for us to kind of cover it in a, a different light from what we've done over the last couple of seasons. And it'll be interesting to talk to those guys a little bit more in depth in season as to what it's like to be down there um, mm -hmm. because it's a, a really unique thing for prospects. And, uh, and like you said, I mean, so many guys aspire to it. It'll be neat to get the reaction while that's actually in progress. Uh, and strike three this week is something that kind of spun out of the Arizona fall league from 2014 pitch clocks. Sam has an outstanding story uh, in the tool shed column up this past Last week on pitch clocks and the way that they I kind of described it like this in a tweet the other day from the MILB account they sort of came in like a lion and went out like a lamb it was the biggest story going into the minor league season and then like by the end of April everybody had forgotten about the pitch clocks because <laughs> everything worked well right yeah well that, well that was the thing is that uh there was a month for everybody to get used to it and it was you know umpires would just give them warnings say listen you haven't thrown it yet normally I would give you a ball but you know, for that first month until May 1st um, is when the penalties started to kick in. And at that point, everybody really had grown used to it. Um, you know, just pouring over these numbers when I was putting them together, uh, minor league baseball as of a whole, that means every league, every level, every, you know, every team, as a big umbrella, minor league baseball cut games by six minutes this year. Uh, in 2014, average time of game was two hours and 49 minutes. This year, it was two hours and 43 minutes. Um, I believe that was the shortest average 
since 2007. Um, so we're talking about a, a, a long time now. And there was a stretch there, obviously, where the game is kind of going. Everybody needs to slow it down, you know, do your routine. And now we're kind of getting into let's not speed it up, but let's, you know, get ready. Let's get moving um, just because that makes for a slightly more enjoyable fan experience, I think. Um, but in terms of pitch clocks, the AAA and AA leagues where these pitch clocks were put into place, uh, average game times dropped by a full 12 minutes, so a fifth of an hour. Uh, in 2014, AAA and AA games were on average going two hours and 54 minutes. This year, they were at two hours, 42 minutes. Um, and just as kind of a control, if you were thinking like, well, maybe that's a number of different things that can go into that. All other leagues that I kind of kept track of um, only saw average game times go down by one minute. So if it didn't have a pitch clock, we only saw a minute chopped off. If we if there was a pitch clock, on average, 12 minutes was chopped that off. That is fascinating. That's a significant amount of time. You may think that's 12 minutes, but then you start adding that up per game that's going on in every AAA and AA league. That's a lot of time saved. Um, and for, for this tool shed piece, I got to talk to Lucas Giolito, um, friend of the pod, a uh, guy who you know, has been very grateful for us talking about this stuff and he was very you know he uh forthcoming with it you know he he made his double a debut july 28th at that point everybody at the level should be used to it um you know he's going from class a advanced where they don't have the pitch clock to double a where they do and i asked him what was that transition like and he's like well you, you see them you see the big clocks you know what what they are but for me who's kind of a fast pitcher this is giolito talking for him uh it, it didn't make a difference. I mean, you, you get the ball, you throw it, it's fine. If you go through your normal routine, everything is fine. It's for the longer guys who you know, need to scratch every orifice, so they need to do all these things. That It was more geared for them. So for the average pitcher, it didn't matter. For the other ones, it obviously had an effect and kind of spit, sped up games. And then the cool thing was I got to talk to Commissioner Rob Manfred, and he said, you know, that they were obviously very encouraged by the results. Um, you know, wasn't about to get into specifics about whether Major League Baseball is going to start looking into this for next year or, you know, anytime soon. He, he kept bringing up that it's going to be the result of negotiations with the Players Association. And that's not necessarily collective bar bargaining. We don't have to wait for the next CBA cycle. It's more, according to the CBA, if there's going to be major rule changes, Major League Baseball has to negotiate that with the Players Association for, for putting it in. If the Players Association gives its go-ahead, or tries to negotiate it, you know, work out some things, maybe it's 25 seconds instead of 20, something like that, um, then it can be implemented immediately. If Players Association does not agree to negotiations, then the league has to give them a year ahead of time, uh, a year of advance notice. So what would happen was if somehow they can't work it out this offseason to put in pitch clocks for next year and Major League Baseball definitely wants to do it, they would have to say, listen, for the 2016, excuse me, 2017 season, we're definitely going to do it. Here's your one-year advance notice. So we'll see how that kind of goes. Um, it, it re, you know, I were talking to a bunch of players about this. They all seemed encouraged. Um, they all seemed said like it didn't make a difference playing-wise. Um, as much as people kind of want to be curmudgeonly and think like, oh, it's it's bringing a time that time clock to the timeless game. You know, it, it is working, and um, I think we can all agree. Quicker games are, as long as it's not speeding it up, as long as it's not making it five-inning games so we can all get out there earlier. Um, you know, if it's doing its job like this, chopping off 12 minutes, it, it's working. Uh, 
So it was encouraging this first year, and we'll see where it goes from here. Uh, really interesting, too. Just 10 minutes ago, um, a White Sox prospect blog, futuresox.com, just tweeted, game day shows Adam Engel, who actually is one of the players that I covered in the White Sox organization, all-star story this week, uh, started at bat with a, quote, automatic strike, unquote. Anyone there in Glendale who can tell us what that was about, and I'm assuming that's a pitch clock violation because at bats can start with automatic strikes or automatic balls handed out for violations. They can continue that way as well with violations. So you kind of see it working. And uh, Adam Engel's a guy who hasn't worked with those before. He was in Class A advanced all season this year. So welcome to the AFL, kid. This is how it goes here. But, uh, you know, it works, obviously. Right. It's it's doing the job. Right. And there's also the uh, keeping your at least one foot in the batter's box. So that could have been it, too. That's true, too. He could have gotten in, gotten out, and uh, oops, uh, didn't mean to do that. And it's an automatic strike. So Did I mean, the they, jig that players do now, trying to keep a foot in. Right, exactly. So it could be just a <laughs> trial by fire. I mean, the fall league is a place for experimentation. Um, nothing, at least that we've seen, that's as crazy this year. Um, trying to be being tried out as crazy as pitch clocks were last year, but uh, that's the, it is a place for experimentation. So this is some somewhere we always look to see how players handle all. Uh, this new environment so all kinds of cool stuff going on in arizona for the fall league and instructional leagues in progress and wrapping up and we've got a very cool conversation to get to right now justine siegel a coach in the arizona league uh or in the instructional league in arizona for the oakland athletics uh a lady who has done a whole lot of cool stuff in baseball to this point and is really just getting started we're going to talk with justine about her role with the a's and a whole lot more baseball for all helping out with uh, the international baseball federation all the stuff that she does teaching in northeastern university some very very interesting stuff coming up with justine siegel here on episode number 29 of the show before the show We are absolutely thrilled with our guest for episode number 29 of the show before the show podcast. Justine Siegel is the first woman to throw batting practice to a major league team. She did that for the Cleveland Indians in 2011. Later, the Oakland Athletics, the Tampa Bay Rays, the St. Louis Cardinals, the New York Mets, and the Houston Astros. She's coached at the college and the professional levels in the men's game, a 2011 graduate of the MLB Scout School Development Program. She's chair of the Women's Commission for IBAF. That's the International Baseball Federation. PhD in sports psychology from Springfield College. She's the director of of sports partnerships for sport and society a center at northeastern university founder of baseball for all a nonprofit organization dedicated to providing opportunities to girls in baseball and most importantly out of that mouthful for our purposes uh is a coach this season in instructional league play for the oakland athletics justine siegel joins the 29th edition of the show before the show podcast and justine just kind of take us through how you got to this point in your career and being able to to help out with the a's this year in instructs in mesa arizona you know, I was 13 when I was told that I, my coach said he didn't want me on his baseball team because I was a girl. And despite being shortstop of team when I was 12, you know, that was um, that was a moment where I realized not everyone was going to be supportive. And that was also the moment where I realized I was never going to quit baseball. Um, I just loved the game, and, and I knew that being a girl was not a really good reason not to play it. Um, so that's when I sort of really got even more involved. And at 16, I decided I wanted to be a college baseball coach, in which uh, I was immediately laughed at uh, because I was told that a man would never listen to a woman on a baseball field. So I decided when I was 16 I was going to prove that guy wrong and get a Ph.D. so that I could, um, if I didn't have the same professional playing opportunities, 
I could at least provide an educational element in sports psychology to to the team. Uh, and for me, I think that um, a coaching staff is it, it's best when there's diversity, when you can offer different kinds of things. If everyone has the same expertise, then that's not your best staff. And um, I think that I've been really fortunate to work at the college and pro level now, you know, just bringing another element to the game, another element that helps these players get better. I think one of the things that a lot of people don't realize, especially in the U.S., is that women's baseball is huge globally, huge. And the United States has a very, very good team that I think flies a little bit under the radar. But the U.S. women's national team won gold at the Pan Am Games this year. They beat Canada in the gold medal game 11-3. to But women's baseball, there are a lot of female athletes out there who don't want to get pushed into softball. They want to play baseball. And internationally, in, in Japan and Korea and Australia and Cuba, there are massive women's baseball programs. For you to continue to stick to baseball, um, have you seen already the the message that that inspires in other girls and other younger athletes who are able to now see somebody who goes on and makes a career out of that and thinks, yeah, I, I think I could follow that path? Yeah, I mean, it's really humbling to be a role model, and uh, I'm really grateful for that opportunity. And I started that, uh, the National Nonprofit Baseball for All for girls who want to play baseball or learn to umpire or coach, you know, any way they want to get involved in the game, they now have a community of people to support them. And last year we held our first nationals, which was, um, you know, 12 teams of girls, 12 and 13 years old, all just playing baseball. And no one there telling them they have to quit and play softball. So they're just playing the game they love. And uh, we're going to do that again in San Francisco this year. Um, but it's really amazing because these girls love the game so much, and yet every time we get to the field, someone says, hey, you should play softball. And, um, you know, I think that if you tell a girl she can't play baseball, what else is she going to think she can't do? And, and, and it's the best game on earth, so why not play it? There's some really uh, fascinating numbers on your website, which is baseballforall.com. We'll talk about this more here in a little bit, but it says 100,000 girls play youth baseball, but only about 1,000 go on to play high school baseball. And it's not like the other 99,000 just got to their freshman year of high school and thought, nah, I don't really like baseball anymore. And so that's kind of the challenge is figuring out avenues to let those girls continue to try playing baseball at higher levels and, and continue following those dreams. And, and again, we'll talk about that a little bit more here in a minute, but let's dive into your work with the athletics um you obviously in 2011 got some experience with major league clubs and i know you struck up a relationship a little bit with billy bean at that time and what was the process to get you involved with the a's now and bring you on as a, a guest coach for instructional league this year um well i've been talking to the a's now you know i see billy bean at the winter meetings you know, every year and just you know say hey how's it going and you know he knew i wanted to do an instructs and so this was the year when I asked, and um, it just made sense that this would be the year, and um, here I am. It's really kind of incredible, and I really love working with the guys, and you talk about long days. You know, I'm up at five because we got to be field at six. I don't think people realize how much work actually goes into the game and how many ground balls those guys take, and there's got to be a coach there hitting them. Uh, so it's a full day, and it's, um, I'm just really thankful for the A's for believing in me and, and realizing that. I could contribute to the team. For the people who don't know, Instructional League is almost like a fall version of a mini spring training for a lot of guys. And guys who, you know, teams think need additional work or they need to get some more at-bats or they're coming off of an injury, that type of thing. Like you said, I mean, people don't get how much work goes into it. You're on the field at 6 in the morning. Guys are taking hacks or taking ground balls or doing all that kind of stuff. What is a typical day like for you and for the players? And, and how would you, if you had to describe instructs to somebody who's never really encountered that before, how would you explain what you're doing? 
doing in Arizona right now to them? The men are players that the organization wants to work with, so they're from different minor league teams and have been brought in for the month, and they're all working on different elements of the game. Um, so we have, we started as our coaches meeting at 7 o'clock, and, you know, we review, and then we have um, different meetings after that with players. So maybe you're a pitcher who's looking over video. Uh, maybe you're just a, a, your hitters, and you're sort of going over what happened in the last game and, and what's our approach this game. Um, after that, there's early work. Um, I do a lot of work with the infielders. Um, so we were just, um, you know, just practicing, you know, how, we, how do we want to approach first and second? You know, there's so many different elements to the game. And um, whether it's defensively or offensively, you think you know the game because you've been playing it for so long, and yet there's always one more thing to learn. And then um, after we do our work, uh, we break for lunch at about 11, and then we play another instructional team from one of the other organizations around here in Phoenix. One of the neatest things is seeing the way that the guys have reacted to you already. I mean, there's players. I know the other day you retweeted uh, James Terrell III, who's a player in the system, who said, quote, first woman coach in baseball, what a blessing. She's the best. And you've got pictures with the guys, you know, from day to day when you guys are getting set to do work. Um, what has their embrace of you been like? I mean, especially to your entire life be told no guys are going to listen to a, a female coach or, or somebody who wants to help them out on a baseball field. To see the way that these guys obviously are really rallying around you and not only that, but learning from you on a day-to-day basis, what does that mean to you? It's an incredible feeling. You know, I have fought so hard um, every day. I mean, there's really no logical reason why I'm still standing. Uh, but I'm here, and, you know, to go into your locker room and see your, your age jersey just hanging there waiting for you to put on. And the guys have just been really uh, receptive and amazing. And, um, you know, when I say, can, I, can you guys uh, take this picture with me? I mean, they all jumped up. There was no hesitation. They all wanted to be a part of it. And, um, you know, it just really warms my heart. And um, I'm really enjoying this time. Let me ask you about, I mean, this season has been very big for women in Major League Baseball. Um, I mean, we know that there are, have been women in administrative roles. Kim Ng, uh, obviously, is one of those trailblazers. There are some other pretty high-level um, baseball operations executives that are female around Major League Baseball. But this year, we've seen a lot of stuff, not just off the field in those types of capacities, but, you know, in game broadcasts. Obviously, Jessica Mendoza has been huge, uh, a big storyline over the last few weeks, even to a, a little bit lesser extent, Jenny Kavnar was a member of the Colorado Rockies broadcast team. She did uh, some play-by-play earlier this year, was the first female broadcaster to do that in the National League. And it's not just off the field in those capacities, but on the field this year, uh, Melissa Mayu is a French shortstop who was the first woman, the first female player to be added to the international registration list. She could potentially be signed by a major league club as an international free agent now. Um, to see those barriers falling and to see the access now that women are getting to some of these positions that, you know, even 10 years ago would have been unheard of or unthinkable for you to know that you've been a driving force behind that. What kind of impact does that have when you see, I mean, you tweeted a picture the other day of a a letter that you got fan mail that you're getting now through the athletics. I mean, how much of an impact are you able to, to feel like you've had, do you get to carry that out and, and have that sense of pride when you go to the field day to day now? Well, First, thank you. I mean, I don't think of myself sort of in the same rank. You know, I'm just sort of doing my job. We'll say it for you. There's also like Dean Ackerman, who's the assistant GM of the Yankees. You know, she's been there right. forever, doing incredible work. So, you know, there's been pioneers um, before me, and I really just hope that as I'm moving forward, there's girls 
you know, behind me saying, hey, I can do this too. And and also the guys can say, hey, you know, it's not that odd having a female coach. And, and, and this is something that we can see maybe not at the pro level everywhere, but you're also going to see at the youth level where we have more women coaching and more girls playing. Uh, but it, it's always very humbling to get fan mail. And, and I had a father tweet saying that his daughter wanted to be me for Halloween. You know, I don't know if it gets much better than that. That's so, awesome. Um, so, you know, it's really, for me, I know there's a lot of media and there's a lot of hype, but the story is not really about me. You know, it's just about how much girls and women love this game, how they want to be involved. And, and the men that are going to, you know, participate and be a part of it. You know, one player to me said, Know, that he loved that I was expanding the game. And he was a big fan of that idea. And I think we're just in this collective consciousness of, hey, this is the best game ever, so let's all get involved. What is the next step from your perspective for Major League Baseball to continue uh, bringing more, not just you know female fans, obviously, but, but women who want to play the game and who want to be involved in baseball, who want to scout, who want to work as umpires, who want to do that kind of stuff? What's the next step in that outreach from the organized baseball perspective, from the way that you view it now, having kind of seen it from both sides of this equation? We think supporting the grassroots efforts, you know, just as Commissioner Manfred is doing with the One Baseball, uh, you know, our organization, Baseball for All, provides many of these opportunities. For example, at our nationals, we had all of the girls go through an umpire clinic. Um, this way they're introduced to umpiring and they see it's their it's their possibility to go ahead and take. Um, so I just think the younger we get these kids, the more they're going to grow up fans and the more they're just going to participate in the game in general. Justine Siegel is on Twitter, by the way. You can follow her at Justine Baseball. You can also follow Baseball for All, which is at Baseball for F-O-R underscore all. It's a 501c3 dedicated to continuing to provide opportunities and avenues, uh, especially for girls in the game of baseball. And Justine, I mean, seeing all of these, the A's have so much young talent now, and we know kind of the transitional period they went through, especially in 2014, trying to contend, now really rebuilding that farm system. There's a lot of good talent in that that Instructs program right now. I mean, Jacob Nottingham is a guy who a lot of people have an eye on. If you had to pick some of the guys who have really impressed you so far through Instructs, and for A's fans, some guys to keep an eye on going into the 2016 season. Who's stuck out to you so far? Uh, I love my guys. I'm not going to point all of them. I guess you I can't just pick that. one out when you're working with a group. That's true. <laughs> I'm not going to pick them out, but Nottingham <laughs> is an exciting player. And there's a bunch of good guys, guys I see going in the major leagues. They will not all of them, but you can see them. Um, <laughs> Good group. Watch out for the age of the future. It's happening. They're, they're coming back. That system is so loaded. And uh, this has been so cool for us, Justine. And, uh, again, I mean, we're all very much in awe of what you've been able to accomplish already and, and very much in admiration of what you're doing right now with the A's because it's not easy work. Instructs is not easy work. You hear players talk about how they're getting sent to Instructional League, and it's like getting sent for after-school tutoring because you're so tired at the end of a long season, and you got to go do Instructs. And, and to have that love to be there waking up at 5 in the morning, getting to the field at six going through those workouts day to day has got to be both exhausting but i know it's got to be a, a dream come true to a certain extent for you as well and and still just kind of scratching the surface obviously of, of what we know to expect from you in years to come and uh thank you so much for joining us and for all your work to this point congratulations on all the success if people want to get involved with baseball for all um and for some of the other causes that that you're out promoting and, and working with what's the best way for that and to get information about that baseballforall.com perfect 
It is all there at baseballforall.com. You can learn about Justine there. You can learn about stuff in your area and uh, ways to continue to provide meaningful opportunities and pathway in baseball for girls. And Justine, it's a day off for you, so go relax. Do something that's not, you know, hitting grounders. And uh, thanks a ton for joining us, and hopefully we'll be doing it again in spring training. All right. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Continuing along our discussion uh, of women in baseball, women in sports, Justine Siegel, so cool for us to talk to. And she is just one of many women who are doing really, really impressive things throughout the world of Major League Baseball and Minor League Baseball as we bring in Benjamin Hill for this week's edition of our Ben's Biz Banter. Uh, Welcome back to the show, Ben. Howdy. Hey, I'm good. I'm the best woman in all of baseball. So let's see, you've done a lot of work on this uh, in seasons past. You've written some really cool stories on um, female front office members, female administrators throughout minor league baseball. Um, this is not something new. I mean, you heard Justine mention a few people, and I mentioned a few people who have been involved at the major league level in administrative roles, uh, people who are, you know, even on the player development side or the baseball administration side. On In minor league front offices, obviously, that's much more business-oriented, but there's a lot. I mean, I know Visalia has a female general manager, uh, for example, Pulaski has a, a duo of female administrators in the front office. Just kind of tell us a little bit about the the community of women in these roles throughout minor league front offices. Yeah, I mean, minor league baseball, as you guys know, is a working in a front office is a subculture in and of itself. So all the women who work in those front offices, you could say, is I don't know a subculture within a subculture, but it is a uh, an increasingly large group, and um, it's only getting bigger. And I don't see any. Um, you know, change in that trend. Even in the time since I've been um, covering the industry and attending industry events, uh, my first one was 2007 winter meetings. There's just a higher proportion of, of women working in minor league front offices every year, and um, I think on the whole, it's a pretty open industry. It's because it is a, you have to prove yourself regardless. You have to show you can work those hours and kind of dedicate your your lives to the job, especially during the season. So there's no real gender distinction with that basic qualification. Um, but there still is, obviously, the stereotype of sports is men. You know, men is sports. Um, so there's been a lot of uh, progress made, I think, especially here in the 21st century in terms of uh, increasing the ranks of women in minor league baseball. And I'm not sure if that's, you know, the result of a specific industry initiative as much as just, um, you know, women throughout sports in general and throughout, uh, you know, the American professional ranks in general increasing. Um, so it's it's not something I expect to see you know change anytime soon. Just like we wouldn't expect to see a change in American society. And before we were on, we were talking a little bit about a group therapy session you had. You know, you got to sit in on about you know women in sports and women in baseball in particular. What what was without spilling any secrets or anybody's stories that didn't want to get told or anything like that in that kind of setting. Um, what was discussed there, and what is kind of the future, or what were they saying they think the future is of females in baseball, and specifically with the minors. Yeah, this was at the promo seminar, which I attended earlier in October. Uh, I sat in and on, a, on a group therapy session uh, moderated by Aaron O'Donnell of the Sacramento Rivercats, and it was called you know, Help a Sister Out, and was along the lines of uh, a place for women to gather and you know, talk about issues um, you know, facing women who are dedicating their lives to working in minor league baseball. And you know, I asked beforehand, hey, can I sit in on this? I'm just interested in the perspective. And uh, they were cool with it. I even got a round of applause myself and the other man in attendance for uh, braving a room full of women, which I don't think really takes much bravery. It's, no. uh, I like I like being I like I like women. So um, <laughs> it was an interesting discussion to sit on because I really was you know interested in in 
from their perspective, what is um, what are the issues you're facing? And one of the first things they started talking about was um, there's not really too many barriers uh, for entry into the industry, but how do you not get pigeonholed as uh, marketing and community relations? Those are the jobs that women seem to you know, get steered toward and or gravitate toward. And there was a general discussion of, well, we might want to be assistant general managers and general managers and the career track that we may start out at or get pigeonholed within doesn't give us the experience in sales and operations in which to really then become an assistant general manager and a general manager and uh, you know positions of power within the front office. So I think that's a really interesting point. And I think a lot of what was said was just it's about um, being assertive, easier said than done, um, you know, for all of us really, but kind of making sure you're in communication, you know, with the people you're working for and under saying these are the goals I want and not to sell yourself short because it's not necessarily expected um, of a woman to want that kind of job. And I think a lot of maybe the obstacles or discrimination that's faced is um, not overt, but more just um, an assumption that that's not something a woman would want to do. So that was uh, definitely one of the main issues. And then they were also talking about you know the broader stereotypes from the outside world of a woman working in baseball and the cleat chaser stereotype and getting pigeonholed as someone who's there just because they love the players and they think that you know you get to see a lot of cute young men in in uniforms. And obviously there was a lot of offense taken at that stereotype and the assertion maybe that men in their own way are even more interested in the players in that way, uh, at least from the perspective of fanboys and thinking it's really cool to be around those players and uh, don't make it a gender thing. There is a lot of interesting stuff. There's, I mean, there's so many different roles that women have already filled and are continuing to fill throughout minor league baseball. And I mean, even as far as radio broadcasters, we know that there are a couple of teams that have lead and assistant radio broadcasters that uh, either are female broadcasters or have been in seasons past who have gone on to do other things, but it's really cool. Um, it's one of those uh, things that we're happy to be able to talk about. I mean, the same way that we talked about other barriers that were broken earlier this season, this is a really neat thing for us to dive into as well. Um, ben, let's transition a little bit and talk about, uh, we talked last week at some length about a refresh for the Hickory Crawdads um, who have gotten a, a sort of new look. It's a, a refreshed logo and identity rather than a rebranded. We kind of went over that thing, but there have been a whole uh, set so far of teams that have come out with kind of tweaked looks. Nobody's really dived into the whole brand new identity thing, uh, but Sacramento, Charleston, West Virginia, some of the teams with new looks uh, with some refreshed stuff. Yeah, I wrote an article about this that ran on uh, MILB.com last week because really where else would it run? Um, yeah, there, as you said, we have not had any complete rebrands yet, and um, it's kind of been a fun discussion to have over what constitutes a rebrand versus refreshing a pre-existing mark and rejuvenating, reviving. A lot of times these re-words are used uh, interchangeably, I guess, so long as you get the retweet. And so we've got um, a lot of changes, but none that really merited like a story on its own. So we've just been kind of rounding them up. And uh, I think one that got a lot of attention, at least regionally, is the Sacramento Rivercats with the Sacktown logo. Um, it says Sacktown over the state of California, and uh, two bridges are silhouetted on the state of California, San Francisco's Golden Gate Bridge and Sacramento's Tower Bridge. So it's a way to be very specific to Sacramento by saying Sacktown across the front, but also via the state of California and the two bridges, San Francisco and Sacramento, cementing the relationship between uh, the San Francisco Giants and their affiliate, you know, the AAA Sacramento Rivercats. So I think that's a pretty good one. 
um, and a really good incorporation of regional pride and major league affiliation. And um, yeah, so there's, there's been a whole uh, a mix of stuff. Tyler, I know you mentioned that you were a big fan of the uh, the West Virginia Power. Yes. Yeah, you said that yes so uh, vociferously. I did. <laughs> It's really cool. West Virginia has had – they've got a really cool identity. I mean, they've incorporated the old Charleston Charlie's logo uh, as one of their primaries. And even in doing so and doing a, a throwback logo as one of their current uh, – the one of the main images of their identity, they've done a really good job, too, incorporating the concept of power. It's one of those very uh, – you know, kind of new age, almost like the 90s theme of naming teams after abstract uh, sorts of things or not naming teams in plural form. I mean, a lot of what that what we saw in the 90s into the 2000s. Power is not an easy thing necessarily to project um, as a, a logo, but they do it with the lightning bolt and, you know, being a, a, obviously a big mining community and all that kind of stuff. This one is a, an interlocking WV. Uh, for the West Virginia power, but the V is sort of in negative space and it also incorporates a lightning bolt. I think it's just really, really simple and really well done. Yeah, it is well done. And that's one of the few I've seen this year done by Brandios. Um, Studio Simon did the Hickory Crawdads rebrand, and I think they were involved with the uh, Charleston River Dogs um, refresh, as, we, as uh, we'll call it. Um, and then, interesting enough, the, the Ogden Raptors, who did a, I guess we'll call it a refresh, uh, that logo was designed by the New Era Cap Company. This was something I was going to ask you about. Yeah, that was done for free um, with the kind of business arrangement that New Era thinks it's you know financially viable for them to design a new logo for a team for free and then uh, reap whatever money goes into the design costs um, on, on increased cap sales. So I don't think you could hire New Era if you were doing a complete rebranding because it would obviously uh, involve so much more than the cap. But if you're wanting to do a logo that is cat cap based then you can go to new era directly and actually before i talked to dave baggett the president of the team i hadn't realized um that that was possible and him being the president of a pioneer league team rookie level obviously not the kind of team that has too much money at its disposal being it's such a small market short season you know he was elated at this idea that that they could uh, freshen up their logo get a new primary logo and uh you know not put any money toward the design cost and he also told me that uh, one of the alternate caps, which has a claw coming from the O. He originally wanted a drop of blood coming off the claw, but it was deemed uh, family-friendly. <laughs> he was hinting that he might try to get a special edition, uh, private-use-only uh, blood-from-the-claw cap. So uh, we'll see about that. Well, and that's <laughs> just I – mean, I was just going to say real quick, Sam, I had never yeah. – and you kind of answered it there, Ben, but I had never heard of that before. And Ogden, I mean, their past logo sort of looked like it was drawn – by a grade schooler, and this one is very much a modernized uh, refresh, but I had never heard of New Era or a merchandising company coming out and being the ones to do design like that. I just found that fascinating. Yeah, m myself as well, and you know, I've been covering this stuff for quite a number of years, and it's easy to get a little jaded. I enjoy it, but it's easy to get a little jaded, like here we go again, same old you know, types of quotes from the same people designing the logos, and you kind of start to think, that, not necessarily that you know it all, but that you know how the game works, and then something like that, it's just like, huh, I didn't know that. You know, it's, it's, it's good. It's good to come across those things uh, and work and in life. That, you know, we never know it all. I, in fact, we know so little. 
I was just going to say, wasn't the uh, drop of blood deemed not family-friendly by his own family? By his own son, yeah. yeah by his son, <laughs> who would be less mature yeah, than his own father. You'd think it would be the other way around, like 12-year-old kids, like, Dad, it'll be You should put some blood on it! Oh, yeah. And his son's like, uh, I know, middle-aged dad, um, I think we really need to think that we are in an industry in which the primary uh, component is affordable family entertainment, and uh, the violence implied by blood on the claw is not something a family-friendly audience would appreciate they're raising very forward-thinking kids in ogden i guess yeah i was gonna say maybe it's the next darren rebel type person (laughs) next marketing manager when he's only 12 ben let's talk about some more stuff that's coming up on the blog um we over at length over the last few weeks have discussed kind of your final pieces that have come to the site but there's a ton of stuff that's still going up to the blog um give us an idea of what is there most recently and what is on the way here shortly bensbiz.mlblogs.com yeah on the blog um you know, I visited 35 ballparks this year and really try to get a lot of unique material out of every visit. And to be quite honest, it's 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 a lot for me to keep up with. Um, and I do a pretty good job throughout the season of finishing one of my road trips on the blog and with my website articles before moving on to the next one. But as the summer got, we got deeper and deeper into the summer and the season, it just all kind of piled up. And the good aspect of that is it's October and I'm not dealing with that kind of, huh, what do you write about in October feeling? I'm still living in the past uh, every day, uh, finishing up all my road trip coverage on the blog. Uh, had uh, two Nashville posts appear this week, you know, detailing my visit to First Tennessee Park, um, giving a lot more detail than the original article I wrote. Um, and then I'll move on after that to my last road trip of the season, New England, and document all that in blog form, uh, seven different ballparks there. So, it's frustrating to me from a personal perspective to kind of want to psychologically break from the season and say, okay, I did that, but I do appreciate um, having something to write about every day and uh, still being involved in what I look like is my annual project of uh, doing all the best road trip content I can, and it's, it's still going. And right now my goal is to get it all done before the MLB postseason ends because then technically we're still in some kind of season. And uh, that's the goal, but Ben's Biz Blog, check it out. New ballpark writings uh, detailing my 2015 road trips, um, you know, several times a week for the next several weeks until it's finally all done. Bensbiz.mlblogs.com. Benjamin is on Twitter as well. He is at Bensbiz there. And as always, just bring in the know-how, bring in the noise, bring in the funk. Yeah, I bring it all. <laughs> Thanks, man. Hey, thank you. Big thanks to Justine Siegel. Big thanks to Benjamin Hill for joining us here on the 29th edition of the Show Before the Show podcast, which you can find on iTunes. Uh, you can rate, review, and subscribe to the show there. You can get in touch with us, podcast at MILB.com. We're going to experiment with a whole bunch of different uh, cool concepts and ideas and segments for the offseason. We may well do a, uh, a mailbag type of thing. So if you've got questions, thoughts, comments, concerns about prospects or anything else in the world of minor league baseball, send them there or tweet them at us. Sam is at Sam Dykstra. M-I-L-B. I am at Tyler Mon, and Minor League Baseball is at M-I-L-B as well. You can follow us there. You can follow us on Instagram. You can follow us on Facebook. You can like us. You can do all kinds of stuff. I think we're on uh, Friendster. Yeah, or uh, it, everybody back home in New England is big. Getting in an uproar over uh, Bill Belichick's My Face, Insta Face. <laughs> Insta Face. Yeah. That was the latest a, one, right? He's been doing this for years. It's a shtick. <laughs> Let's just all stop buying into the shtick. He's not our 
our dad who doesn't understand how this fancy technology works. Did you hear he combined the two social network names? Yeah. I can't believe it. Instaface. You can follow MILB on Instaface. You can follow. You, if you find us on Instaface, please follow <laughs> us there. We, we're not aware that there were, we're there yet, but please follow us there. And please, please just in general, not even in a technological way, just like us. Yeah, just, just like, like us. us. We crave hey. your approval. Favorite us, do us, do us all the in, in the real world. You can uh, <laughs> you can do all that there. You can also find the podcast at milb.com. Uh, elsewhere on the site, you can vote now in the 2015 Milby Awards, the best of this year in minor league baseball. You can vote for best offensive player, breakout prospect, starting pitcher, reliever, top play, top game, top farm system, all kinds of good stuff. Uh, so you can vote now at milb.com. And you can also, of course, make sure to check out uh, this year's organization, All-Stars, which we've got four up on the site right now. And we have more on the way this week. Arizona Fall League underway. Venezuelan Winter League is underway. The Mexican Winter League is underway. I believe the Dominican Winter League gets started this week. Australian Baseball League gets started next week. So while you're watching the Major League playoff games, there's a whole ton of other baseball to follow. And, uh, of course, the AFL getting started. Uh, We've got box scores, game days, all kinds of stuff up on MILB.com as well. So you can follow how your favorite players are doing in the AFL. And, um, man, I think that's it. That's it. That's, like, more complicated than any ending an episode in july we've got so yeah, much i know yeah but this is as packed a show as you can have in mid-october as we were expecting when we started this so this is good all kinds of fun and uh until next week uh we've we're going to be narrowing things down in the the major league races which by this time next week we may know basically the world series matchup if we have quick championship series right we could be getting yeah. close we could see. Uh, I'm not going to... That is nuts. Yeah. After making my World Series prediction of the Pirates, I'm not willing to say anything <laughs> about this postseason anymore. So. I'm picking the Fresno Grizzlies to win the uh, the World Series this year. That would be a better bet than the Pirates. They, <laughs> they have a trophy. <laughs> they served me well with my last prediction, so I'm going to take the Grizzlies. Yeah, there you go. Until next week, we'll talk to you guys then.